All right, well, good morning, everybody, again. It's good to see you all here. I know we have uh, some of our parents are going to be coming up from uh, bringing their kids downstairs. Um, but what we want to do is we want to be able to jump right into our sermon. We've got uh, a lot to cover this morning uh, and a topic that... Uh, can be a really blessing, encouraging topic, a topic that can also be really tough as well. And so uh, we're going to navigate that through God's word together as we're in our Arrows series in which we're living towards the target in various family relationships. And so we started off with generational captivity, looking at uh, the struggles that maybe our parents and grandparents had and how that impacts us. And then last week we looked at sibling rivalry and we looked at the story of Jacob and Esau. And today we're going to look at marital mystery, the idea of what it looks like uh, to have a marriage from Ephesians 5 that honors God. So will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for the fact that you are here in this place. I thank you for each and every person who is here and for each and every person that might be listening online later. Lord, we're thankful for the fact that, um, that you love us and we just sang about that. So every person who's hearing my voice is deeply loved by you as evidenced by the fact that you sent Jesus to live a perfect life, and he died a horrible death, but was raised to new life so we may have eternal life through him. So God, we are thankful for how you love us. Lord, we pray that as we dive into your word that I would decrease, you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us, Lord, and that may you um, just guide us and walk us through what can be difficult, but Lord, is also meant to be so beautiful, and that's a topic of marriage. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as I mentioned, we're talking about marriage today, and um, it was when Shailen was four years old, uh, we were talking, we had watched uh, Beauty and the Beast a lot recently, uh, Belle was her favorite Disney princess, and this is the cartoon, the original, and we would watch it a lot, and we would kind of talk about it, and we would talk about how, you know, Gaston was like, he looked nice on the outside, people liked the way he looked, but on the inside, you know, he was ugly, and he was mean, and all these things, and how the Beast was the opposite of that. And so she was getting ready for, uh, in the bath one day, and we were just talking about Beauty and the Beast, and so as a pastor, it's just like a crutch, I always just find teachers moments, even when they're unnecessary. And so um, I'm like, well, honey, you know, we're talking about marriage. And she, I think she's like, she, we are. Um, but we're talking about like, what's the most important thing for you when you want to, to marry somebody someday? And she says, well, that he's, that he's nice on the inside and not just on the outside like the beast. I'm like, honey, that is, that is really good. Um, but what's even more important than that is that they love Jesus and that they love you and lead you. And right in the middle, she goes, daddy, I'm not ready to have this conversation yet. <laughs> and so I'm like, all right, teaching moment over and just scrubbed her hair. And so just this moment of recognize that, you know, it, it felt like maybe a hard conversation or kind of a big discussion for her, but it's also important as parents, right? It's important for us to help our kids learn what to set their sights on, what it is that we're looking for, not just in marriage, obviously that's a big part of it, but, but when it comes to life, like what does it mean to set our sights on a, a life that's like Christ? What does it mean to set our sights on a family life that follows Jesus' example? Marriage, how do we work? I mean, all these different ideas. And so we wanna know how do we set our sights on the target of how God would want us to live. And so I'm gonna use a, a specific example as we talk about marriage today that uh, Emma Ballora let me um, very carefully borrow her uh, uh, bow. And so she was giving me lessons. And so please, by all means, feel free to laugh at my form. And so as we do, um, you know, being able to set your feet kind of perpendicular, she's in the audience, so she could just yell if I'm doing it wrong. Um, you go like this. 
and then one finger above here, two here, and you find an anchor point. You find a part of your face that is, um, won't move, right? So you find your jaw or whatever it is right here. And then this part right here are the sights. And so you set your sight on your target, and there's a lot more to it, obviously, but then hopefully you just let it fly, and, and, but you use this in order to determine where it is. Now, if this were a little bit lower, if this were a little bit higher, if my angle was a little off, if my anchor point wasn't as consistent, like if I chose my cheek and then my weight fluctuates and all of a sudden it's from here and all of a sudden it's, well, not here, that's extreme. Don't laugh, that's mean. Um, no, I'm just kidding. So it's one of those where you, know, you have to find a consistent anchor point and then when you do and you line up your sights, then you know that your shot will be true. And so one of the things that uh, I learned as I've been using like archery terms in order to explain the different relationships uh, that we're talking about in this Arrow series. And the term that I, that I found that it felt appropriate for, for marriage uh, was this idea that when it comes to setting your sights, you can have a sight like this. Another way to make sure that your anchor point is consistent and to make sure that your sight is true is that you have something, and there's not one on this, but what you would do is kind of right around here as you pull you would have something that would rest, a little button that would rest right here inside your lip. I have two pictures of it. Um, so you would see how there's that little plastic button, if you could see right in the corner of his lip. Um, the next picture, just again, just kind of showing that's a little bit more obvious because of the color of it. And the idea of what this is called is called a kisser button. So I'm like, marriage, kisser button, this sounds like this would be uh, an appropriate terminology. Now the kisser button, is described like this. It's a tied-on plastic button that the archer's lips go around while the string is pulled back. It helps the archer have a straighter shot, and the kisser button should be used uh, in place of a peep sight. Then it talks about the importance of, again, as it serves as an anchor point. It says the anchor point is crucially important because having a single spot to which you routinely draw means that you will be able to aim with consistency. Without an anchor point, it is absolutely impossible to consistently hit a target. And as we've been using Psalm 127, 3 through 5, talking about how children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior, and then our children born in one's youth, and blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. The idea that we're talking about is how when it comes to our kids being arrows, our marriages are the anchor point. They're the ones that allow the consistency that parents or that kids know that their parents consistently love each other, consistently love Jesus. They are the anchor point that allows us to determine that we are consistently able to live and release them to the target of living a life like Christ. And so our sermon is called the kisser buttons, but kisser, marital mystery. What I love about that is that out of context, it makes no sense. In context, it makes some, and we'll see. But as we look at our main point this morning, if you're new with us, we have uh, fill in the blanks. If you want to fill those out, great. If not, no worries. There is an option for you. But our main point is that the mystery of marriage is that if you set your sights, if you use your sights on happiness, you'll miss. But if you set them on Christ-likeness, you can have both. If you set your sights on happiness, you'll miss. But if you set them on Christ-likeness, you can have both. What does this look like in the scripture? What does God teach us about marriage? And there's several passages. The one we will be in today is from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 through 33. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, the church Bible is in the seat rack in front of you. And we're on page 1820, 1820. If you brought your own Bible or using the Bible app, that's great. Again, Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. 
And so the, the first point that we want to compare, if happiness is our target versus Christ-likeness is the target. When our happiness is the target, people put their wants first in your notes. People put their wants first. When Christ-likeness is the target, people put their spouse's needs first. We see this. We're just going to read the first verse, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That in Philippians, Paul asks us to, or commands his people to, put others' needs above your own, thinking less of yourself and being in, following the example of Jesus in this beautiful hymn in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. But this idea is that we put not our wants first. We put our spouse's needs first. And what happens is we live in a world in which happiness, we want to have our own happiness. We want to make sure that we look out for number one. And the world tells us, well, if you're not happy in your marriage, then just don't worry about it. But this idea of happiness can't be our only target. And so when it comes to this idea of happiness, if we are able to you know, get beyond like, oh, well, I just need to take my, make sure my needs are taken care of. I need to make sure what I get, what I want. And as long as my spouse is fulfilling my needs and my wants, well, then everything's okay. But what happens is that if I'm trying to think of just my own needs, and maybe Steph is following a biblical example, and she's trying to look after the need of her husband, then all of a sudden my needs are looked at twice and double, and her needs are looked at zero times. So what happens is in a God-honoring marriage, when we're aiming for Christ's likeness, it's I'm not worried about whether my wants or my needs will be taken care of, because if I'm lovingly leading and serving my wife well, then she will respond, and I will be able to serve her and lead her and love her, and then she will be able to respond in doing the same for me. So both of our needs are still met, but it takes Submission, it takes the idea that out of reverence for who Jesus is, out of reverence of how he even submitted to the Father, which we'll hit on in a few moments, that we follow that example of submitting to authority, to submitting to one another's needs, and laying down what we want, that we would decrease, that God would increase in our relationships and in our marriage. Timothy Keller and his wife, Kathy Keller, wrote a book, uh, The Meaning of Marriage. It's a great book. Um, Sorry, I haven't finished it. It seems like a great book, so I don't want to make sure I'm clear. But here's what he says, what they say. Whether we are husband or wife, we are not to live for ourselves, but for the other. And that is the hardest yet single most important function of being a husband or wife in marriage, is putting the other person's needs above our own, putting their needs above our wants. Let's continue on. The next part of your notes talks about this. When our happiness is the target, submission is a curse word. When Christ's likeness is the target, submission is a Christ word. Let's read this. I'm going to read verses 22 through 24. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. 
Let's, let's take some moments to unpack that because submission and submit are, are very difficult words. That those are words that in our culture, we rail against that. We don't want to submit. We want to exert our power rather than submit to authority. And so what I want to be clear of is that a couple things in the text. One, and when it says in verse 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. The word submit there is actually not there. When it says, the Greek actually talks about in verse 21, hey, submit to one another in reverence for the Lord. And then 22 in the Greek would essentially say something like, wives to your husbands. Does that make sense? So it's under the umbrella of mutual submission that the call for wives to submit to their husbands is. It's, it's part of the mutual submission for one another and to one another in honor of the reverence to Christ. So we look at that here. Now, let me also make this clear, that submission, the word that we use for submission in that, in that passage, has two different meanings. That one meaning means to subjugate, to make subject, to make less than. And Paul, in the, in the, in, in the New Testament as well, uses that verbiage in other places for the word we see is submit in verse 21. Yet this example is not a subject subjugated make less than. It more paints the picture of the idea of, quote, to be willing to submit to orders or wishes of others, to be willing to. In other words, my my old senior pastor, what he would talk about is how this word submit much more paints the idea of not a doormat that gets walked over. That is not what God is calling wives to be. But it's more the idea of whenever you're going on a freeway and you're in the slow lane and someone's merging, what drives us crazy? Is someone like goes crazy, cuts us off, and like, what are you doing? You know, we get upset. This idea of submission that's mutually between the couple, but this idea of submission is an idea of yielding properly, of being willing to let the husband lead. And so this is not a demeaning term. This is not something that tears down the role of wives. Like, and for example, again, when it says in verse 22, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. That does not mean, husbands, that you are to lord over your wife. That does not mean that we take a position of you are less than, you are subjugated, you are subject to me. No, no, no. We're going to see in a few moments that husbands have a heavy, big, important calling of how we are to love our wives. But so when it says as to the Lord, it doesn't mean that we are to, wives are supposed to treat husbands as if they are God. It's the idea that their submission is a way that they serve God. And so as we see again in a few moments that the husband is going to be called to put his wife's needs above his own. And so when a wife has a husband who will lovingly lead and serve her, she'll be more willing and yielding to respecting him, as we see in verse 33. She'll be more readily available to trust in his leadership, and she'll be more open to being a helper, as Eve was called in the very beginning in Genesis. Now, again, the word helper is no demeaning term. Do you want to know who helper, that word is referred to, who is used as, or sorry, who that is the antecedent, who is referred to as helper in the Bible? There are only four. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and woman. This is not a term that is demeaning to wives or women by any stretch of the imagination. It's a heavy calling, is that being in the image of God that that is a way in which she can serve. Now, again, let me be clear. When you talk about this idea of how, do we, I think we all know where 
Eve was created, it was out of Adam's, was it out of his foot? No. Was it out of the shoulder? No. It was out of the rib. Why is that? Well, if it was created out of his foot, then he could say, you ought to be under my feet. You are to be subjected to me or subjugated to me. If it was to be over her shoulder, then it's the idea of the wives being nagging over his shoulder and saying, you are underneath me. No, no, no. We're, women was, woman was created out of man's side to be under his protection, but to walk side by side through life together. This is not a demeaning term, but because submission in our culture sounds like a curse word. And because, to be honest, there are times in which men have used that incredibly poorly. That, you know, you, husbands will say, you have to submit or you have to do that. Well, then it creates this negative taste in our mouth. And that was never the taste that was intended to be when God created man and woman, husband and wife. Verse 23 tells us that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. I want to point us to 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 that when Paul talks about again in that section, but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. And as you look at that, the order seems a little weird because in my opinion, if I were the one writing it, you'd want to kind of have it be a build, right? You'd want it to be like, okay, well, the head of woman is man, then the head of man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. Like you'd want to build it that way. I don't know if this is why he puts it in this order, but I, I would tend to believe that the reason it's the head of every man is Christ is first is to emphasize that men have to know how to lead and love and serve as Jesus did. And when that happens, when man is following Christ as the head of his life, then he's able to lovingly lead and serve his wife in a way that then she would want to follow his leadership. She would trust in him. And she would be able to yield in time and to stand up for things when that time comes as well. Again, not subjugation, but walking alongside one another in life. That, he's, that she is under his protection from the rib and walking together. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. We're hitting back that same idea. And so because, again, submission is a curse word in our society, let's take just three or four examples of words from Jesus himself, how submission is a Christ word, a word that he lived by, a word that he pursued, and a word that he taught us how to do. When he's talking in John chapter 8, he says this. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. That Jesus' goal in life was to glorify the Father, and he died for our sins by doing that. But he wasn't going off and teaching what he wanted to do. He wasn't exerting his authority, because all authority was given unto him, but he submitted himself. He willingly yielded to the will of the Father. John chapter 6 Another example, for I have come, in Jesus' words, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Again, submitting himself to the will of the Father. And the most clear example that we see from the words of Jesus comes when he's in the garden of Gethsemane, and he's, it's the night before his death, and he talks about going off to pray, and he says this in Luke 22, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, beyond the disciples, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. 
An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. That we paint this, where we see this incredible picture of pain and heartache and gut-wrenching, knowing what's about to happen to him, knowing the burden that was going to come from your sins and my sins and the sins of all the people throughout time, knowing the separation that was going to come, that he was going to have with the Father, that he had had perfect Trinity unity with throughout all of time, and yet he knew that that separation and that burden was coming, and he had all power to stop it. He could have, but he submitted because submission is not a curse word. When we give our lives to Jesus, submission is a Christ word. We follow his example. We live as he lived, and we submit to one another in mutual reverence, and we submit as he submitted to the Father. The next point in our notes says this. When our happiness is the target, love can be mutually beneficial. That could be a good thing. When Christ's likeness is the target, love is wholly sacrificial. That we can have a mutually beneficial marriage, and that could be a good thing. We could take care of each other's wants and needs, and that could be a good thing. And we can be happy, but the moment the happiness ends, if it's no longer mutually beneficial, we have a culture in which we look for escape clauses. We look for ways to get out. And the truth is that this was a similar culture that they experienced back in their time as well, that people would look for ways to get out of marriages. In fact, submission, uh, the idea of submission from a wife to a husband would be very common in the Greco-Roman world, in the, Ro- in the world around Jesus' time. In fact, I read in one commentary that There could have been, inside of a marriage clause, grounds for divorce if the wife wouldn't submit fully to the husband. So what Paul is doing when he's painting the picture of submitting to each other through reverence in Christ, submission from the wife and that demand would have been ordinary. The idea that a husband would submit and lovingly lead and serve his wife and putting her needs above his own, that is extraordinary. It was extraordinary back then, and it's still extraordinary now when we see it come to fruition. When we see husbands lovingly leading and serving their wives well. And so it's no longer, hey, this is beneficial for both of us. Let's just stay in this. It's we lay down our lives. We sacrifice for one another. And in so doing, through sacrifice, through submission, and through service, we get a picture of who Jesus is and how much he loves us. Because he loves us so, as we just sang. We get a picture of that. And marriage is supposed to paint that picture for those around us. Timothy and Kathy Keller, in their book, they say it this way. Controversially, Paul says, controversially, that wives should submit to their husbands. Immediately, however, he tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and, quote, gave himself up for her in verse 25, which is, if anything, a stronger appeal to abandon self-interest than was given to the woman. Here's what it says in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. 
And so, husbands, we have an incredibly important, heavy, in a good sense, a powerful calling when it comes to loving our wives. Because we hear the term submit so much in our culture, we can shortchange this big calling that are on husbands to love their lives as Christ loved the church, to wash with the water of the word, to make her holy and blameless, to make her pure before the Father in order to love her so much and pray over her and serve her and come alongside her and lay down his life for her if necessary and lay down his life for her daily because of his wants being less important than her wants, that we miss out how important that calling is. We think this passage just tells husbands to say, wife, you must submit. And we cut out that husbands are given a big, big calling to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And our culture's perception of who a husband should be is depressingly and just drastically different than who God calls husbands to be. Husbands are not to live selfishly, love half-heartedly, or lead weakly. Husbands are to love their wives as Jesus loved his wife, his bride, the church. Verse 27 talks about how they're to be able to be made holy and blameless. And we see the same exact language used in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 4 says this, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In other words... In the same way that Christ loved us as his church and made us holy and blameless, not because of our own good deeds, not because of what we've done, but he made us holy and blameless, presented to the Father, pure, because of our sin being taken away and we have the white robes of righteousness. Because of that, we're able to stand before him. And in that same way, that same terminology, Husbands, we are called to love our wives with that kind of love, that sacrificial love, the laying down our lives love. Francis Chan and his wife Lisa wrote a book, You and Me Forever, another great book. And this is what he talks about when it comes to the importance of husbands. Because one of the things he talks about is how husbands or wives will look at the past and say, you know, wives are called to, like what wives are called to do submitting, that's actually harder than what the husbands are called to do. And, you know, he talks about, have you read this passage? And here's what he says. He says, I, he's speaking in the first person, referring to him, he and his wife. He says, I've been given a tremendous task. I'm supposed to be Jesus. My love should remind Lisa, his wife, of Christ's love. The longer life goes on, the more she should feel like she is married to Jesus. I should be so selfless that it reminds her of the cross. I should have such a high standard of purity that she, should never, that she never has reason to doubt my faithfulness. Just as she would never dream of being lied to by Jesus, she should be confident that I will never waver from the vow I made to her. This is a big calling, husbands. And if we're both mutually submitting to one another, but then husbands are called to love this kind of way. Imagine, imagine the lives, the marriages that can be saved. Imagine the anchor point that gives to their kids. Imagine how that changes their home and it changes a neighborhood. It changes their workplace. It changes their kids and therefore it changes the generations to come. 
When husbands take the lead to love us as Christ took the lead to leave his throne room in heaven and come from the riches of heaven into the rags of a manger so that we could experience the riches of heaven. When it came to Jesus leading out in that, husbands, we are called to lead first, to love deeply, to serve selflessly, and to point our wife, our kids, our family, and our friends to Jesus. Last part of our notes here. When our happiness is the target, our marriage is about us. How happy are we? How are we doing? What's going on in our lives? When Christ-likeness is the target, our marriage is about the gospel. Let's read the last few verses in Matthew, or sorry, Ephesians 5. Verse 31 says this, for this reason, quoting Genesis 2, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Then verse 32, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Francis and Lisa Chan say this, our marriages they also play a significant role in his great plan. We are called to paint such an attractive picture of marriage that it causes people to long for the coming marriage with Jesus. God calls us to display the love and humility of Christ through our marriage. Our marriage is not just about us. It's about the power of the gospel. If Christ is the I'm sorry, the groom and the church are his bride. We are called to paint that picture so clearly and so beautifully that it draws people in. And they want to know more about who this Jesus is. Who is this? If I see an earthly husband loving and serving his wife so well, and they learn that from Jesus, who is Jesus? Because maybe, maybe he could change my life too. Now, I'm not sure if uh, many of you are aware of this, that there is a, uh, a famous painting um, called the Ece Omo, which means behold the man. It's, it's, the quote is from when Pontius Pilate brings Jesus and he has the crown of thorns and he, um, uh, he's presented, he says, behold the man. And they end up voting for Barabbas to be set free, not for Jesus. So I'm going to show you this first picture. There's a couple pictures we have together. This first picture uh, was hanging in the Sanctuary of Mercy Church in Borja, Spain. And it's a fresco painting circa 1930 by the Spanish painter Elias Garcia Martinez. And it depicts uh, Jesus crowned with thorns. And so it's, you know, it's t typical um, Catholic art. And so there's that first picture from 1930. Well, over the subsequent 80-so-odd 80, 80 years, uh, there started to be some deterioration inside that quality of the painting. So if we could look at the second one, that it started to fade, it started to just get, get discolored, um, and all those different things. And, and this is what the idea is, is that there's a woman that was within the church, who she was an, at an attendee of this church uh, in 2012. What, she was an amateur artist. And what she did is she felt that she was going to restore the painting of Jesus to its original uh, version on, on the left. And so this is what came out of it. If we could show this next picture. I don't know if you could quite see. It's, it's discolored. It's, it's not nearly the same beauty that it was. It, it was something that what didn't have the same impact. And what ended up happening as a kind of a 
side note is that because of this new painting, this church became, you know, well-known. People would travel. They would want to be able to have, uh, like, tourists wanted to see it. And so it became this big thing. But the painting on the far right could not be more different than the painting on the left. The picture that people see of marriage in our culture and throughout time could not be more different than the way that Christ intended it. That if displaying, if our marriage was to display a picture of Jesus, if husbands are lording over their wives, if wives are going off and doing their own thing, if there's no leadership or sacrifice or love in marriages, that what was meant to be a beautiful picture to display the power of the gospel starts to deteriorate, and then the culture will come in and say, no, this is what we want marriage to look like. It should be about our happiness. It should be about what we want. It should be about looking after number one. It should be about making sure that our needs are fulfilled. It should be about making sure that everything is about us. And then that kind of marriage is vastly different than the way that marriage was intended to be. And this kind of thing can happen within our culture, and it can even happen within the church if we don't recognize that it's mutual submission. It's husbands leading first and loving and leading and serving. It's wives being able to respond to that lovingly leading and serving husband in respect and being able to come alongside and support and recognize they come alongside one another under the protection of the rib rather than being lorded over or anything like that. So Francis and Lisa Chan continue this idea that we talked about with displaying the picture and the power of what a marriage, a godly marriage would look like and how our world can taint it. They say displaying God to the world is the purpose of the church and it's also the purpose of marriage. People should see the way, this is Francis talking about his wife, should see the way I serve my wife and get a glimpse of the humility that Christ showed. Anyone who sees Lisa joyfully following my lead should understand more deeply what it means for the church to follow Christ out of their respect and trust for him. God created marriage to be a picture that displays Christ to the world. My point in all of this is to insist that there's more at stake in your marriage than just your marriage. The beauty of the gospel is at stake. Our marriages aren't about us. When Christ's likeness is the target, our marriage is about the gospel. Now, as we close, I want to address a few things. First, some of you are, are not married. Some of you are single. Some of you uh, may have had a, um, a spouse pass away, and so you're not married. And so you look at this and say, well, how does this impact me? Like, like listen, you talked about kisser buttons. That's fun. And, you know, we're talking about marriage. That's nice. But how does that impact me? Well, if you were to look at all of those different um, the, the different four points that we have here, and instead of saying when our happiness is the target, our marriage is about this, or when Christ-likeness is the target, our marriage is about this, replace the word marriage with the word life. That if we're single, when Christ-likeness is the target, well, then my life isn't about me, it's about the gospel. When, when it's not about my life is no longer just about me, beneficial, being beneficial, it's being sacrificial to those around me and experiencing that type of love together. If it's something where we look at it just about um, 
living the life the way that we want it to about our own wants and needs, about putting the needs of others above our own, that's what we do in life. So if we're single in this room, that doesn't mean that this sermon isn't for you. It just as much paints the picture of love and following Christ's example. Some of you have a spouse who is you're navigating what it's like if your husband or your wife, your other spouse, isn't following the Lord as dearly as you are, as closely as you are. And in 1 Peter 3, 1, it talks about how, specifically wives, but how we can, through our example, through our behavior, that spouses can be won over by the love of a loving spouse who loves Jesus and loves his or her spouse. And that can impact people powerfully. That over time, they could see that this love is not just about my benefit or not just about us, that this is about the gospel and see the example there. Some of you are in troubled marriages. Marriages where maybe you sit next to each other on a Sunday morning, but that's the closest you get all week because there's conflict and hurt and heartache. And if that's you, man, there is such power in being able to find a Christian counselor to walk through things. We talked about how important mental health is, walking through those wounds. There is such power in prayer. And whether it's praying together, whether it's you have a group of people that we're just going to pray for our marriages, that they would, we would fix our eyes upon Jesus, that there is such power in recognizing that we don't lose hope when there's conflict in marriage, that we don't say things are tough, we're leaving, but we draw in closer those of you that have experienced deep hurt and there are biblical grounds for divorce, that's something that you have to be able to just navigate with the Lord and say, what is it that he's coming alongside? What does it look like to have either the restoration, if that's possible, or what does it look like to, to navigate those next steps? And if any of you are in a marriage in which there's abuse, when it says to submit, wives, submit to your husbands and everything, that is not abuse. It's someone treats you with abuse and they say, well, you have to submit. No. It's not what it's saying. Husbands are to lovingly lead and serve their wives, not to hurt them with their words or their physical actions. So I get that I can share a sermon up here for 35 minutes and for some of us, that's nice, and it feels good, and it's great. And there are very real heartaches in this room or people listening online later. I don't mean to gloss it over. I'm not trying to just say everything's going to be perfect by the time I say amen. But when Christ's likeness is our target, we can experience the happiness of what we want. Not because what we want is best, but because when Christ's likeness is our target, our wants become what he wants. And we're able to live the life that he wants us to live, have the relationship he wants us to have, and paint the picture of the gospel he wants us to paint. Francis Chan closes with this section in this. He says, as a pastor for over 20 years, I've come to the conclusion that most marriage problems are not really marriage problems. They're God problems. They can be traced back to one or both people having a poor relationship with God or a faulty understanding of him. They continue on. It's not on the screen, but he talks about this, that this marriage, as we see in Ephesians 5, is a mystery. And then Paul explains that the mystery is not marriage between man and woman. The marriage is between Christ and the church. And this is what he closes with. It is a miracle that human beings can be united with God. 
The gospel is a miracle that we are able to rejoice and be glad and give him glory, as Revelations 19 says. For the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And this fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people that because of the power of the gospel that shows us that, as Timothy Keller would say, that we had so much sin that Christ had to die for us. And Jesus loves us so much that he was glad to die for us. That there's nothing we could do on our own. He could chase us down. That He shows us this reckless love, this love that is beyond what we earthly can understand. But he leaves a 99 to bring us home. And that kind of love is the love that we ought to have for our spouses, for our kids, that anchor point that sets them off to be released in the way that God wants them to. It's that kind of love that we have to those around us so that it paints a picture of the gospel. It's the kind of love that can transform broken marriages into healed ones. It's the kind of love that can transform those who are hurting others because they've been hurt and they healed and then bring healing. It's the same kind of love that shows us that our sin and our wounds and our heartache and our struggles are not the end of our stories. Just like Good Friday is not the end of Jesus' story. So there's hope. It takes work. It's not easy. But if we set our sights on Christ's likeness, we'll be able to have happy marriages. But we'll be able to become more like Christ. And in so doing, painting the picture of what marriage is meant to look like. So that those around us would know what Jesus looks like by looking at the way we love one another. Father, we thank you for who you are, Lord. And I pray right now, as I know, again, we started off with this is a hard topic There can be pain and heartache and difficulty navigating all these things. Um, There are times in this sermon in which uh, there were probably some things that um, maybe felt like they hit just way too close to home. Or maybe we disagree with or we struggle with or we're not sure how to handle. God, I pray that you just go before us, um, that you speak to us in such a clear way that that what people hear is not judgment from a pulpit. What they hear is the call to live the life that you've called us to, and that's not easy, and it takes submission and leadership and service, and it's not something that we take for granted, but, Lord, it is the call of how we respond out of the love you showed for us in the gospel. We can then respond to you by loving one another and that we could show our spouse what Jesus looks like when Christ's likeness is our target. So God, I pray that we would rest in your reckless love and your powerful love, the love that chases us down when we are lost and you help us to be found, that knows that you love us so much that as a loving husband initiated the pursuit of his wife, that you initiated the pursuit leaving the riches of heaven to go to the rags of a manger so that we may be redeemed. May we, Lord, follow suit as husbands and may our marriages honor you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.